Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 203, White, Qureshi, and Zacharias on YouTube. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to address three different things that I've seen on YouTube lately. The first of these is that after many months, Dr. White has finally responded to my debate challenge. Here's what he said on his program on November 16th, 2017. I have, over the past year or so, gotten numerous uh, tweets and uh, face well not facebook messages because my facebook you can't do it to me on facebook i you can do it on the ao page but i don't see a lot of that stuff so anyway i've gotten a lot of stuff about dr dale tuggy when i first heard that name it rang a bell and my recollection was that i had seen a fair amount of information on that's uh, on uh, that individual over on Triablog. Uh oh. <laughs> and I remembered reading some articles on Triablog that were dealing with alleged incoherencies in the doctrine of the Trinity from some guy named Dale Tuggy. And having looked at them, I had gotten the impression that Dale Tuggy's thing is that he's a philosopher. He's not basing anything on being driven by revelation. He's oh. driven by philosophical categories. Oh. And so he's just saying, well, it can't be this because of this philosophical conundrum here or that philosophical <laughs> oh, conundrum man. there. Or, you know, if I don't accept your utilization of language here, oh. then this doesn't work over there and, and stuff like that. And, you know, the guys that try a blog, even though there are a couple of them that don't like me very much, that's okay. We've all got our place in the kingdom. They don't and like you, a lot of people. They may people. not like me, but I, I say God bless them anyways. It seemed to me that the guys that uh, try a blog had done more than a sufficient um, job in taking apart these these arguments. And so I didn't I didn't give it much thought because uh, I've got a, got a book here called The Forgotten Trinity. And what does it say right at the beginning? I'm a biblical Trinitarian. I... I'm not a Trinitarian because I studied philosophy and went, oh, this, uh, this is compelling to me. I find this reasoning compelling. And so uh, let me pause it there for a second. So he's talking about uh, dozens of posts by this, how to describe him, long-winded, ranting, hot-headed, polemical apologist, a guy named Steve Hayes. Uh, Hayes just hates me and uh, likes to slander me as an apostate. The thing is, is that Hayes's views on the Trinity are incoherent. Hayes's views on the Trinity are incoherent. I've talked about this many times. I'm not going to go into it more now. You have to explain certain things about the concept of numerical identity, which is not a philosophical theory, really. It's just part of common sense and part of standard logic. So, yeah, when I'm talking with Hayes, I'm showing how his views are incoherent, that they end up implying P and not P in some way. But, but this is a big mistake, reading somebody like Steve Hayes and thinking that that tells you what Dale Tuggy is about. That's like listening to Rachel Maddow on a bad day and trusting her description of Republican policies. Just no, you, you don't want to do that. You want to read the sources themselves. Now, I already said this in a blog post called Some Clarifications for Dr. White. But just briefly again, no, I have never argued that the doctrine of the Trinity is incoherent. This is because I claim, based on historical reasons and a lot of careful investigation over many years, I claim that Catholic tradition mandates certain language, certain vague ideas about the Trinity, but actually this language can be and has been interpreted in contrasting ways, in contrary ways, ways that cannot all be true. The way I usually put this is I say there are many Trinity theories. If you get past the language to the actual theology, to the actual view, there are many views there, all hiding behind this traditional terminology. So I never have said and never will say that the Trinity, that is the one thing that all Trinitarians are thinking, 
is incoherent because there isn't one thing that all Trinitarians are thinking. So if you want to be a Trinitarian, I say, great, three persons, three hypostases, one usia, one essence. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean this or this or this or this? And only then, once you've stated your actual theory, then we can see if this theory actually best explains Scripture. Uninterpreted language can't be considered. It's not even on the field of play as against other interpretations. Now, I know Dr. White is surely laboring under the assumption of many apologists that there is one thing that Christians have been thinking since this mandated Catholic Trinity language was brought about, and even before that, even going back to the New Testament. But this just doesn't stand up to careful historical investigation and to careful reasoning. It's just not true. Trinity theories are many. There are many easily accessible sources. Dr. White might read about this. There's my long article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the Trinity. And there's my book called, What is the Trinity? Which is actually easier, I think, than reading that encyclopedia article. There are a couple chapters in there where I go through the different ideas that Trinitarians have. Now, the part where he said that uh, I'm just driven by philosophical theories and not at all interested in basing my views on Scripture... If you've listened to very many episodes of the Trinity's podcast, uh, you're facepalming really hard right there, because the whole thing I've been seeking all along is to mold my views to what the New Testament actually says, whether or not that fits with Catholic traditions. So yeah, Dr. White should not trust popular polemics and should just go ahead and read some of these sources. They're readily available. He says, I'm the scripture guy. I want to base everything on revelation. Well, welcome to the club, Dr. White. That's the Dale Tuggy view right there. I'm glad we agree about that. Of course, we're going to disagree about our interpretation of divine revelation. Let me let him continue now. I'm a Trinitarian because I believe the Bible is the word of God. Right. And That's why I'm it a reveals to us that there is one God. Uh, it reveals right. to us that there are three divine persons who are not confused with one another. Nope. Um, and it reveals the full equality in that one divine nature, who is, that one God who is Yahweh of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so nope. all of the discussion that has taken place since then to explain that, and as the gospel has gone out in the world to, to interact with different, different perspectives of the world, has to go back to those foundational realities. And philosophers just don't have those foundational realities to go back to. This part's very strange, Dr. White. Uh, it almost, it sounds a little bit to me like kind of bigotry against somebody who has degrees in philosophy why would a philosopher be unable to study scripture and to do proper exegesis and understand texts in their correct historical settings? Being a philosopher doesn't disqualify you from those things. Now, you can become enamored with speculations. Some philosophers are quite enamored of speculations. This is true. Unfortunately, so are many non-philosophers and many theologians and apologists. Some of the people who are most uncritically assuming philosophical theses are people who think they don't have any philosophical influence on them. What my philosophical training has done for me is it's helped me to learn to argue better and also to be careful to not assume philosophical theories when those shouldn't be assumed, when they're just not something that's obviously true to everybody. So in all my work on the Trinity, I discuss various philosophical theories when I'm dragged into that by my fellow Christian philosophers who apply philosophy to show how the Trinity is coherent. So I might discuss, say, relative identity theory when I'm discussing the work of Dr. Mike Ray. But on my own, when I'm just interpreting the Bible, I don't think anything that Scripture mandates for believers to agree to can depend on a controversial philosophical theory. So I'm very careful not to base my reasoning on controversial theories. Steve Hayes, by the way, is confused about this. He has trouble separating theories about personal identity from just the logic of identity. He's very quick to accuse and uh, 
still has a lot to learn about logic and philosophy. But anyway, yeah, there's nothing about being a philosopher that means that you're unable to deal with scripture. In fact, there are some tools that philosophers have that are useful. And that's not my interest. I'm not interested in debating with people who are basically philosophical, um, philosophically oriented rather than biblical oriented. So, well, or revelationally well, oriented, because I, mean, I deal with a lot of Muslims, but they believe in revelation. I mean, once you become a liberal Muslim, we don't, I don't have much right. Biblical to say Unitarians to you either. believe in revelation. Uh, then Dr. Again, I'm not White. really sure you're a Muslim at that point, but that's another issue. Well, I made some comment either on Facebook or Twitter, maybe on the program, I don't remember. Basically saying what I just said, and oh, mm, yeah, I think it's on Facebook somewhere. Became unglued. Oh no, 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 no! You don't understand. He's, he's no, no. You, you, you don't understand where he's coming from. Right. And so you should listen. To I them. looked it up in my downloads. I think it was July. I downloaded a fifty-minute presentation by Dale Tuggy. Oh, it was based on that hymn title. Um, Tis mystery all, the immortal that, that dies. That beautiful hymn, uh, And Can It Be. Anyways, I uh, I had it and uh, won't be able to live look for it. I was going to play just a section of his comments. So I listened to it while doing, a, I think it was a 12K row or something like that. Mm. It, I just happened to remember it wasn't a ride. It wasn't a run. That's it was, a mistake right there. I'll explain. And much to my non-shock, it was exactly... What I predicted it to be it was exactly what I predicted it to be. It was not biblically based. There's no exegesis. There wasn't anything like that at all. It was purely, well, you know, some philosophers understand it this way. And then some people ask this question. And some people ask this question. And there, the, it, it, was, it, was ex it was a philosophically based, not revelationally based presentation, which is exactly what I had said. And so I was like, okay, that's, that's what I expected. Yeah, so I suspect it was a mistake to try to listen to that presentation while exercising because you kind of need to look at the slides to actually follow the argument. He very well might have had trouble following the argument and then just said, aha, this guy's just all about tricky arguments. What a, what a tricky philosophical guy. But to say that it's not at all revelation-based is just patently wrong. I mean, look at the blog post for that episode. This is episode 145 of the Trinity's podcast. The bottom of the blog post, I refer to Daniel 4, 1 Timothy 1, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy 6, Matthew 24, John 3, and John 14. And he says this isn't based on Revelation. Well, of course it is based on Revelation, Dr. White. And the people that are suggesting different views, of course, are theologians people who are trying to make sense of Scripture. And right at the top of the blog post and in the talk, I give what look like an inconsistent triad of claims. In other words, three claims which can't all be true, just logically speaking. Number one, Jesus died. Number two, Jesus was fully divine. Number three, no fully divine being has ever died. Okay, it looks like you can't believe all three of those, so you have to get rid of one. And so the approach in the talk is, which one should a Christian get rid of? Are there two of these that are strongly supported by Scripture and one that's not strongly supported by Scripture? That's the argument. I claim that there's more scriptural support for Jesus died and for no fully divine being has ever died than there is for that Jesus was fully divine. I don't get into all the kinds of arguments that Jesus is divine. This is a big subject of speculation, but... What I do do is go through different ways of understanding the two natures traditions. There's only four ways you can respond to this inconsistent triad. First, you could say it's not really inconsistent, that it only looks to be inconsistent, that you could actually agree with all three claims and that could be self-consistent, or you could deny one or two or three, or you could deny two of them, but probably scripture is going to hold you to two of the three. So basically there's four ways of responding. Dr. White has not responded. He just said, oh, this guy's a philosopher. He's not talking about Revelation. Well, you know, sorry you got that impression, Dr. White, but it's all based on Revelation. You shouldn't be allergic to careful reasoning. Apologists like Steve Hayes at Triablog 
have found it very difficult to come up with a sensible answer to this inconsistent triad. And I'm here putting my finger on a difficult issue for Catholic traditions. Bottom line, don't conclude that someone's not basing their views on divine revelation just based on stereotypes and a superficial quick listen to one presentation. On the blog post for this episode, Dr. White, I'll give you some debate prep links, things that will help you understand what my views really are based on. Well, now I'm, I'm guessing he's challenged me to debate and stuff like that. Well, that's nice. Um, he's guessing that I've challenged him to debate. Now, I don't know what's going on here. Either he's inattentive or he's being insincere. But as many listeners will know, podcasts 181 and 182 that were called White's Case for the Trinity, these were released back in May 2017. And I analyze the argument that he gave in his debate against this Filipino Iglesia Ni Cristo fellow. I actually analyze his arguments. Frankly, he needs to show a little more diligence and look into it and see what my critique of his views are. Anyway, Dr. White, give it a listen. I'll give you the links in the blog post for this episode. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I do have the right to prioritize my time and what I think is most important. And we are looking at you know, these, these issues that's, and may even produce some materials in response to some of it. At this point, Dr. White digresses and talks about some other guys who wanted to debate him about something. And I guess they chickened out or something. I didn't quite follow what he was saying. Apparently, when he was interacting with them, the following interaction occurred. And one of these Unitarians jumps in and says, well, yeah, well, you won't, you're running from a debate with Dale Tuggy, as if that's the same thing. As if there's even a, a parallel. So there's, there's a very small group of very vocal, very vociferous uh, Unitarians out there. You know, the Anthony Buzzard group. And they're still smarting over Not the debate Anthony uh, between Anthony Buzzard and Joseph Good and myself and Michael Brown. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're still doing reviews of that oh, be yeah. because they just lost so badly. Uh -huh. And so they got to get back in the game. And so this is the way to do it and all the rest of that stuff. Well... Uh, yeah, a lot of us did watch that debate. Uh, it was not a good debate. It was very painful watching, actually. What made it painful was the Unitarian side did not do as well as it could have. And my understanding is that Sir Anthony Buzzard was put together with that other guy who we didn't know by the debate people. So it was a team that wasn't really a team that didn't fit. And apparently they didn't have enough time to do prep. The other thing that made it painful was just the sneering overbearing, haughty, condescending, contempt constantly poured out by Dr. White and Dr. Brown as they tried to school their opponents on how obvious the Trinity is in the Bible. It was not a good debate. The moderators put their fingers on the scale and sort of helped out the side they thought was the right side. Anyway, it wasn't a good debate really for either side and no... <laughs> Dr. White, uh, biblical Unitarians are not smarting from getting spanked in that debate. That's not how, as far as I know, any of us have looked at it. But I think a lot of us would admit that the case for biblical Unitarian theology could be put better than it was put there. A debate needs to really be well executed. A debate is for the sake of the audience, it's to help the audience think through the issues. And when one side doesn't perform well, or when both sides don't perform well, a debate just becomes, you know, kind of an exercise and beatdown and posturing. If you want to see a much better debate than the one that he's talking about, you should check out the debate from several years back between Biblical Unitarian Sean Finnegan and a Trinitarian named Brant Bosserman. That is a much better argued debate, and it's just way more useful to the listener, I think. An ego and contempt and verbal aggression really don't come into it. And that's a good thing. But to wrap things up, Dr. White does end things on a hopeful note. Well, you know, maybe someday it'll happen after I get done working on P45 and coherence-based genealogical methods and all the rest of the things related to that. But I don't see that as the highest priority for me. And maybe others will be able to uh, do some work in those, those areas. And so... Please stop tagging me with, hey, do you know Dale? Yeah, I know. Not in my wheelhouse right now. And um, 
maybe sometime in the future. We're looking at uh, developing some information in that area, but it's be for somebody else to do, not for uh, not for me. So I wanted to mention that. Some interesting comments there. It sounds like Dr. White has decided, well, I can't handle this guy's arguments and I need somebody philosophical to handle it. Well, maybe that's so. But as I said, it's not, they are not really philosophical arguments. It's just simple reasoning using the tools of ordinary logic and the New Testament. That's really what it's all based on. It's perfectly fair to say I have other priorities. He wants to argue about many things with many people. The reason I want to debate him is because I think that I can make a strong case. I think I can also analyze his case and show that it's not nearly as strong as he thinks. I've said it before, I've noticed that he's bored with this topic. He thinks it's really rather obvious, and he's just tired of going through the same proof texts for the Trinity. I don't think he'll be bored with this. My arguments will be based on the whole New Testament, and of course focusing on some particular passages too. And they will not presuppose Unitarian theology. They will be arguments for it from Scripture. Arguments that can be understood well enough to be criticized. So, for the benefit of Dr. White, or for this surrogate that he doesn't mention the name of, someone who he thinks can handle me better, maybe somebody with philosophical training, I'll put some links on the blog post for debate prep. But just off the top of my head, episodes 191, 189, 124, A Challenge to Jesus' God Apologist, that's another one that he's been ignoring for quite a few months. It's very carefully showing some difficult choices that you have to make if you're going to say that Jesus just is God. If you say that Jesus is Yahweh himself, this gets you in trouble with Scripture, and some simple reasoning can show that. As I said before, I think my book, What is the Trinity?, is probably the best place to start. So yeah, I think, Dr. White, it'd be worth your time. I think it'd be worth my time to argue with you. I think you're a pretty good debater. Your book, The Forgotten Trinity, I think in some ways is a good book in that it's well done. And I might have more to say about that on some future Trinities podcasts. When the Trinities podcast returns, the afterlife of Nabil Qureshi's arguments on the Trinity. In this segment, I'm going to talk about Nabil Qureshi and his speculations on the Trinity. For those of you who don't know who he is, although I think he's become a pretty major evangelical celebrity at the end of his life and now in his death, Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim of a certain controversial sect in Islam, and he became an evangelical Christian after interacting with a bunch of Christian apologists. And he talks about his transition in the very interesting book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I reviewed this at great length in podcasts 93 and 94. It's a very interesting book, and his his journey is very interesting, and he's very brave and comes across as quite likable. I do think, though, that uh, he's a Jesus-is-God apologist and that he just simply confuses Jesus and God, which is a misreading of the New Testament. And his views on the Trinity don't make sense. And in that book, he just kind of goes off on his own speculations and presents that as if that's kind of normal Christian thinking about the Trinity. I wanted to interview him about that book, actually, but he refused to respond to any kind of inquiry. And that was probably because of podcast 51 called Dr. Ravi Zacharias on the Trinity, where I had, I thought, politely but directly questioned his arguments what I would call his freewheeling speculations about the Trinity. I think to criticize Dr. Ravi was kind of blasphemy to Nabil and to other people in evangelicalism, this elder statesman, this distinguished Indian gentleman. How dare anybody criticize what he says? Isn't he one of the great defenders of the faith? Honestly, I've never thought of him as one of the great defenders of the faith. 
I've always thought that he got by to a large extent on rhetoric and that his reasoning, his arguments were in many cases not very well done. But yeah, Nabil Qureshi called him uncle and wanted to emulate him. And I guess he gave up a chance to start working on a PhD to just become the protege of Ravi Zacharias and travel around and uh, be a part of all of his speaking tours and his ministry. See, I never did get to interview Nabil, sadly. I would have enjoyed talking with him, I'm sure. And that is an interesting book that I recommend. After that happened, he really kind of got made into an evangelical celebrity and started cranking out books really quickly. And I thought about reviewing these, but they're not good books, honestly. Sadly, in his early 30s, he came down with stomach cancer and he died. And he left a very heart-wrenching series of video logs on YouTube, which are still there. You can find them at the channel called NQ Ministries, Nabil Qureshi Ministries. I guess based on things that people in his, I think, charismatic church had told him, he believed that God was going to miraculously heal him at various points. And sadly, that didn't happen. I did pray for him like many people, and I prayed that God would heal him, but for reasons known only to God, he didn't answer that prayer. So sadly, he perished in 2017 of this stomach cancer that struck him so early. I actually talked about some of Nabil Qureshi's ideas also in podcasts 131 and 132. I didn't call him out by name because I didn't want to make it personal. I wanted to only talk about the arguments and the claims. Those episodes were called 10 Apologists' Mistakes About the Trinity. And I was just talking about junk arguments like... Let us create man in our image in Genesis. Doesn't that show that God is a we, that God is plural? No, actually, that's not what interpreters think now. So we need to stop with that argument. So I just went after the arguments and didn't go after the people. Of course, some helpful Islamic apologists went through and cut together video of Nabil Qureshi saying those arguments and then me on the podcast directly explaining what's wrong with those arguments, why they're not good arguments. So now that he's departed, Nabil Qureshi's widow is continuing his work, and she recently posted a video on the Trinity. And she explains these Trinity speculations herself, and then she plays what he said. And so I just want to play a little bit of that for you and comment on it. I don't want to criticize her personally. She seems like a really winsome Christian lady and, and has just left a good testimony in her behavior, as far as I know, and her service to Nabil. And of course, she would wish to carry on whatever is good in his work that he left behind him. But my criticism of her husband was that, like Ravi Zacharias, his mentor, he was just repeating some pop apologetics arguments that are not good arguments. They're based on misinformation and on poor reasoning. Just repeating them doesn't make them better. These are not arguments that really good scholars give. And so she's now going to give her own understanding of what this amounts to. So this is a kind of evangelical pop Trinitarian speculation you're going to hear now. Now in Nabil's video excerpt for today, it's connected to this idea of love being central to the Christian message. It's the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Also, love is the nature of God himself. God is love. Here's how the speculation jumps off. Here's the trampoline for it. Reading John's statement that God is love to say that love is the essence of God. That doesn't make sense. The essence of God seems to include, yes, being perfectly loving. It also includes a lot of other things, being perfect in knowledge and power and just goodness generally, being uncreated, being eternal, being necessarily existent. It entails being untemptable and being immortal. But we've simplistically said the essence of God is love. Okay, now we're going to enter the stratosphere of speculation. Now we're going to take a higher speculative bounce. So in some of Nabil's talks about the Trinity, 
he mentioned the fact that we can say God is love versus just God is loving, which of course he's loving, but we can also say God is love. And this is because, because he is triune. Now, of course, the New Testament never says that. And you can take the statement that God is love to mean that God is just the paradigm, the perfect example of love, that to which all lovers should be compared. God's love is ideal love, would be another way to put it. The New Testament never hints that for God to be love requires for God to be multipersonal, much less that it requires for God to be triune. So he breaks it down saying, if God existed before anything else, and if he were not of multiple persons within his one being, he would have had no one to love, and therefore love could not have existed before beings were created to love. I think she means interpersonal love could not have existed. And that's true. I mean, love would have existed because even a unipersonal God would still love himself. He would recognize his own value and value himself. Okay, but no interpersonal love would have existed if God had not created and God was unipersonal. Right, but so what? What's impossible about that or what's, why, why should we think that couldn't be? Why can't interpersonal love be one of the many things that God gains through creation, like his relation of being the Lord over creation? But because God is one in being and three in person, the three persons of the Trinity love one another eternally, and therefore love is a part of God's very nature. Well, it's not clear that that last part follows, or really how exactly the argument is supposed to go here. I've written about this and podcasted about this elsewhere at great length. But what I want to say right now is, the New Testament does not anywhere state or imply that Father, Son, and Spirit eternally enjoy interpersonal love with one another. That's just a speculation, and it's based on a so-called social interpretation of traditional Catholic language on the Trinity. So, we shouldn't be presenting these ideas as if this is just simply Christian teaching. It's not New Testament teaching. It's something that it is hoped is based on New Testament teaching, but that hasn't been shown. And we're arguing very loosely here. We shouldn't be asking Christians to put their faith in arguments like this. So this is a complex topic, the topic of the Trinity. But in this video, in this excerpt, Nabil does an excellent job of helping students to grasp, to start to grasp the concept of the Trinity. I start praying to Allah, and I'm saying, Allah, can you show me the truth here? I need to know what the truth is. And now I start investigating questions like, can the Trinity be viable? What does it mean to be three in one and one in three? Does that make any sense at all? This is the summer of 2003. David and I are taking organic chemistry together. And uh, if you can avoid organic chemistry, I would suggest it. Um, no, it was great. It was wonderful. Uh, so we're taking organic chemistry together. And basically what happens in organic chemistry is you've come out of basic chemistry, your gen chem, and then they say, hey, all that stuff we taught you in gen chem, forget about it. Now we got organic chem. And so we're relearning everything. How many of you guys have taken any chemistry at all? Most of you, okay. So you know everything's made up of atoms, all right? Each atom has multiple parts. You got a nucleus made of a proton and a neutron. You got electrons floating around it. We then have multiple nuclei that come together and those electrons are shared between electron clouds, right? These are now called molecules, okay? They're called molecules. When you have multiple nuclei coming together to, to form one thing, it's called a molecule. Sometimes you have those electrons hanging out in one area. And then all of a sudden they flip to another area because of the polarity and such. When that happens, you have multiple resonance structures. Resonance structures, okay? So basically all that was to define resonance structures for you. Here's what my professor said. I'll still remember her saying it. I mean, I was sitting in the front row. David was sitting right next to me. We had the two highest grades in the class. And so we just goofed off the whole time right in front of the teacher. She couldn't say a thing about it. We're sitting there and she says, she's right in front of me, she says, molecule is every single one 
of its resonant structures at every point in time. Follow me so far? It's every one of its resonant structures, so electrons over here, over here, both of those structures at the same time, but it's no single one of its resonant structures at any point in time. In other words, you can't stop the clock and say, oh, it's over here, now it's over here. Can't do that. So it's all of them all the time, none of them at any point in time. And I stopped and I sat back and I looked at her and I said, if she can believe that about chemistry, what problem do I have with the Trinity? Let me unpack that for you for a second. There are certain things in science that we know to be true, but which are inexplicable at the macro level. This is one of them. Physics, we know light is both a particle and a wave. That makes no sense to physicists, but they know it's true. There are things that happen on the deeper levels of science that just do not fit our macro understanding. Why is it then that the Trinity poses such a problem when we can expect the one who created the world to be more complex than anything in it? So what is going on here? And is he explaining the concept of the Trinity? I don't think so. Look, he's making an analogy with something in chemistry that I don't think he's explained well. Is it really a contradictory claim that they're making? Is it really apparently incoherent? Or are they just putting it very loosely so it sounds incoherent? Or is it just a measurement problem that you can't detect which state it's in? And so you say it's not in any one of them because you can't detect it to be in any one of those states. At this second, I'm not sure. I talked a little bit more about this when I reviewed his book. What he's saying is that something can be true even though it strikes us as self-contradictory on first glance or even on second glance. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but then what is the trinity? What is the apparent contradiction? Is he going to get around to that part? The thing about apparent contradictions is that when you actually say them, the thing that you're talking about appears ridiculous. So, oh, I can't believe that, because apparent contradiction seems like strong evidence that these two things are not true. Okay, so let's see if he actually says how the Trinity appears to be incoherent, and if that's really structurally like this chemistry example that he's come up with, or the physics example. Did you follow that? That was a non-communal, huh? All right, that's fine. It's still not 11 yet. Yeah, I'm not sure I follow. Another way that I looked at it was God created our minds, yes? If I can create a God that my mind can grasp, it probably isn't the right God. God is bigger than us. And I began to realize that no matter what objection I have to the nature of God, it is an inviable objection. Unless there's an obvious contradiction, my objections are inviable because God must be larger than my comprehension. This, I think, is different than his first point. His first point was saying that even if there's an apparent contradiction, it might still be true. And now he's saying that we can't fully understand God. But look, nobody thinks that we fully understand God. Biblical Unitarians don't think that. Sure, a God that you could fully understand would maybe not be so great. But yeah, who's saying that? And he just appeared to say that uh, if there's really a recalcitrant apparent contradiction, then that would be bad. That would show that it was false. But no, we're just actually dealing with things that are beyond us. There, it's not that there's a clear contradiction involved. So which is it? I mean, is the Trinity, as he understands it, apparently contradictory? He seemed to say that it was. Now he's seeming to say that it's not apparently contradictory. It's just that we can't fully understand God. Look, everybody can't fully understand God. If you fully understand God, you'd understand everything that God knows, and you'd understand all of God's plans and his timing. Nobody even claims that, right? Not me. Now, is the Trinity a, con a contradiction? No. How is it not a contradiction? What is the definition of a Trinity? God exists in one being and three persons. Now, if I were to say God is one being and three beings, that's a contradiction. doesn't really get us very far. If he was one person in three persons, that's a contradiction. He's one being in three persons. Well, what's the difference between a being and a person? I am a human being, right? That's my being. It is, I'm a human. You have the same being. You're humans. But my person, I'm Nabil. That's who I am. So my being is what makes me what I am. 
and my person is that which makes me who I am. Okay, God is one being. He's Yahweh. He's God. Magnificent creator. He. But his one they. being has three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no contradiction there. He's just much more complex than anything we've seen on this earth. And that's what we can expect. This just doesn't really express any articulated Trinity theory. And to say that God is complex goes against traditional views about divine simplicity. I mean, what he's saying there is consistent with different speculations, different ways of understanding and interpreting the traditional Catholic language about the Trinity. So in a sense, there's not enough there really to criticize. Other than maybe saying this, a person is a kind of being. So if they are three persons, and each of those persons is divine, and a person obviously is a certain kind of being, it's the kind of being that you can speak to, the kind of being that can speak back to you, it's the kind of being you can be in a friendship with, that's what we mean by a person. Right? So if there's really three persons there, and each person is a being, you've got three beings, each of which is divine, it looks like you've got three gods. Okay, but he doesn't even go down this track. He doesn't even consider this really obvious objection. That was really there from the very beginning of Trinitarian speculations back in the 370s. So I was wrestling with us as a Muslim and I said, okay, ultimately I have to conclude that the Christian position on the Trinity is viable. I don't find it compelling, is what I said, but it's viable. It's not one position, my friend. There is much more that can be said about the doctrine of the Trinity. I want to be clear that this is just a primer for helping to start to grasp the concept of God being one in being and three in person. One resource that can help you dive deeper is Nabil's debate with Dr. Shabir Ali, What is God Really Like? Tawhid or Trinity. And I'll include the link below. If you're on YouTube, you can find it in the description section. Well, that debate, that's another topic. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't think he really explains the meaning of the language or the biblical basis that is supposedly there for the language or the history of the doctrine and its basis in a creed composed by Catholic bishops in the year 381. I'm sorry that wasn't a good introduction to the Trinity. Again, I think Nabil Kreshi was a Christian. I think he did the right thing to agree with the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God's Messiah, and that Jesus died an atoning death for humanity. And I think he put his trust in God, in Jesus. I just think that he kind of confused together God and Jesus. And on the authority of apologists who were older, including Dr. Ravi Zacharias, he put his trust in some speculations that were not trustworthy and not based on good scholarship and careful reasoning. She has every right to post her deceased husband's material. I don't begrudge her that. My message is not for her, but for everybody else. It's don't let emotion and your like for this very likable Christian man lead you to trust in poor arguments and poorly grounded speculations about the Trinity. There's a whole world of more carefully reasoned and more biblically grounded material out there. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some news about Dr. Zacharias. So Dr. Ravi Zacharias was a kind of mentor to Nabil Qureshi, and he published a big newspaper uh, article about his relationship with Nabil, and he gave a kind of sermon at Nabil Qureshi's funeral in Texas. I did notice that Dr. Zacharias kind of emphasized his own activity, his own globetrotting travels in all of this, and I wonder if there might be a reason for it. Now, I said a while ago I've never been a big fan of Zacharias's work. I think in a lot of cases, it's rehashing popular arguments that shouldn't be endorsed. 
I'll give you an example of his style about the Trinity from the actual funeral. It's a quick snippet. What he's discussing here is the agonies that Nabil Qureshi went through with the pain that he caused for his very loving and devout and close Muslim family when he converted. He talks about this in his books. It really ripped his heart out, and understandably so. So Dr. Zacharias launches onto the topic of Christ's suffering, and he gets in a little comment about the Trinity. What I am paying is nothing compared to what Jesus paid for me. And he went on to describe the pain of the cross. It was the most painful, gruesome form of death, so much so that a Roman citizen could not be consigned to a cross except for treason, where the body shifted its weight again and again to bear that weight. And the prayer that he prayed incredibly before that, why have you forsaken me? Because even that very trinity was being mangled in that momentary expression of him paying the price for your sin and mine. Oh boy. So I know this is going to sound like nitpicking for funeral comments, but here we go. First of all, Dr. Zacharias conveniently edited out part of Jesus' cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's not God talking to God. It's not the Son talking to the Father within the Trinity. That's not how the Gospel presents it. It presents it as a man who is dying an agonizing death. He is praying to his God, which we know from elsewhere in the Gospels is the same as our God. It's his Father and his God, our God and our Father. That's who he's talking to. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now about the Trinity being mangled, I mean, this is not part of any traditional Trinitarian theology. In fact, the tradition of Trinitarian theology is that nothing whatever changed with respect to the Father, the eternal divine Logos, and the eternal Spirit. Those are all eternal, immutable, impassable. They can't change, they can't be affected in any way, and they certainly can't suffer. So the eternal Jesus, the divine Logos, is utterly incapable of suffering. So the Trinity was not touched, was certainly not mangled by Jesus dying on the cross. What the tradition says is that Jesus has two natures, and it's the human nature that died on the cross, or that he died in his human nature, or he died in the flesh, or that he suffered in the flesh. This is a problem, of course, with the tradition. If this human nature is going to die on the cross, it looks like it needs to be a human being to die a human death. It's going to certainly have to be conscious and have a mind and a will if it's going to voluntarily go to its death. If it's just a set of properties, whatever properties are required for being human, then the human nature is not the kind of thing that can die. He's just freewheeling it here on the basis of emotion, talking about the Trinity being mangled. And of course, it's part of traditional Catholic theologies that the Trinity can't possibly be mangled or change in any way. And certainly, no member of the Trinity can suffer, unless you're going to say that the Son suffers because of what happened to his human nature. But that's probably going to be a matter of speaking and not a matter of actual intrinsic suffering. Now, the last thing I want to bring up is from another video. And uh, this came out about the same time as Nabil Qureshi was about to die. There's a guy on the internet named the Friendly Banjo Atheist, and I don't know much about the guy. And he has taken a dislike to Ravi Zacharias, and he has dogged him online for his resume padding. And I think that Dr. Zacharias has implicitly admitted that he has resume padded because some of the things that this friendly banjo atheist guy talks about have been changed on the descriptions of Dr. Zacharias' qualifications. So this guy has broken a story based on public legal records that, as far as I can tell, has been embargoed in the evangelical press and has been stonewalled by Mr. Zacharias. This guy's a lawyer, and he has a website and a Facebook page called Ravi Watch, in which he's leveled these criticisms, and it's in these venues and on YouTube that he's broken the story of this scandal. Here he is, just summarizing and reading from some publicly filed legal statements from 2017. 
On July 31st, Ravi filed a federal extortion and racketeering lawsuit against Lori Ann Thompson and her husband, Bradley Thompson, claiming that they'd conspired to get him in a compromising position so they could demand hush money. Here's how it all began. He met the couple at a conference in Canada in October of 2014. He and Lorianne began a friendly correspondence in which she repeatedly contacted him. Because Ravi travels in countries that are hostile to Christianity and he has received death threats from these countries, and because hacking attempts have been made against his electronic devices, he wanted a more secure method of communication with Lorianne, so he gave her his BlackBerry contact information. The BlackBerry encrypts data using a symmetrical encryption algorithm known as AES-256. Ms. Thompson began to escalate her relationship with plaintiff through repeated and persistent BlackBerry messages, emails, and by sending gifts to Ravi. And she eventually introduced inappropriate and sexual topics, even expressing her love for him. In February of 2016, nearly a year and a half after they met, she began sending him photos, innocuous ones at first, but then sexual and nude ones. At some unspecified time, Ravi asked her to stop sending such materials, but she kept at it, saying she could not help herself. At some other unspecified time, Ravi tried to block her messages, and he sought to end their friendship. A few weeks before October 29, 2016, Ravi cut off all contact with Ms. Thompson. Despite having cut off all contact with Ms. Thompson several weeks before October 29th, on October 29th, he received an email from Lorianne saying she was going to tell her husband what had been going on. Ravi was worried about his reputation being unfairly tarnished, and despite having cut off all contact with Ms. Thompson, he continued to plead with her not to escalate the situation. Despite having cut off all contact with Ms. Thompson, Ravi remained amicable out of fear for his family's safety and of potential damage to his professional reputation if he upset the Thompsons. Despite having cut off all contact with Ms. Thompson several weeks before October 29th, on November 16th, Ravi received a text message from Ms. Thompson's phone number. Now, if you're getting the feeling that Ravi wasn't real serious about this whole cut off all contact with Lori Ann thing, you're not alone. In what follows, you're gonna see what looks like an admission of online sexual wrongdoing by Ravi Zacharias. Again, I'm reading from Ravi's own court filing. I have no idea why his lawyer disclosed what you're about to see, but here it is. See what you think. By January 19th, the excrement had hit the fan and Mr. Thompson sent an email to Ravi asking, why would you ask Lorianne to send you photos of herself? Five days later, Ravi replied, this is what I consider the explosive paragraph 75 Please read it for yourself. It's over there at raviwatch.com. Ravi replied, let me answer your question as best as I can without risk of seeming to avoid the full force of the responsibility. Although he denied initiating or proposing that action, he stated that the blame is real and inescapable. He also revealed that when Lorianne came to Atlanta to visit him, he deliberately left town so as to avoid continuing what was wrong. On April 26, Mr. Bryant delivered the $5 million so-called extortion letter to Ravi, and Ravi then reported the matter to his governance committee and hired counsel. Now, assuming everything Ravi says here is true, it's clear that at very least he demonstrated extremely bad boundaries in getting himself into this sexual situation in the first place and extremely bad boundaries in getting himself out of it. Why didn't he report this to his governance committee the moment Ms. Thompson expressed inappropriate affections towards him. Was he having fun? He says he was worried about his professional reputation being tarnished, but what exactly did he do that got himself into a situation where he had to worry about his reputation in the first place? Whatever went on between the two of them, Ravi crossed enough boy-girl boundaries with Lorianne that when she came to visit him in Georgia, he couldn't just tell her no or tell his receptionist that he could not meet this person. He had to flee. Ravi's been doing some other fleeing lately. Some folks, when they file a lawsuit, they courageously stand on the courthouse steps, they hold a press conference, and they field questions from friend and foe alike. What did Ravi do? It's called file and flee. Just as he filed this lawsuit, he fled to an undisclosed third world country where it's so dangerous he can't even tell us its name. And what will undoubtedly be his mantra during this litigation, he blogged from that dangerous country and said, I can't say much till we're out of here. Now, Robbie's a very busy man and it's unusual. That was August 2017 he's talking about. Unscheduled on his calendar. But after his self-imposed exile comes to an end, his first scheduled public appearance is on September 9th, where he will lecture some lucky folks in India on, guess what? Living with clear boundaries.
Those are the facts. Here's my prediction. We'll never know what went on between Ravi and Lorianne because the Thompsons have too much dirt on him that he's going to settle this case for whatever it takes. Ravi's lawsuit is simply a preemptive move to put pressure on the Thompsons to settle for maybe 30 pieces of silver. He's assembled a high-powered legal team, including three hotshots from a fancy New York and Boston law firm. The case will go away. Ravi will make a tearful confession to vague and unspecified boundary violations. His donors and his devotees will forgive him, and he'll be back to business as usual as the great apologist of our time. Thank you for tuning in. I encourage each of you to review the court documents at raviwatch.com and contact Mr. Zacharias personally. Here's his email. I would not normally reveal that to the public, but his lawyer, for some reason, made it a matter of public record. So there you have it. Also, write to Ms. Malhotra at pr at rzim.org and let them know that the time has come for Ravi Zacharias to publicly address the allegations that are mounting against him. Stay tuned for episode two. I'm going to be watching this case really carefully. And unless the Thompsons take their 30 pieces of silver, their answer is due in federal court any day now. So he posted this back on August 19th, 2017, and he hasn't made this follow-up episode yet. I think he's still looking for more information. But anyway, it's obviously a sad situation. It bothers me that the evangelical press is embargoing this. It seems like a relevant story, and it seems like something that Dr. Zacharias should address. On the description of the video I just played a part of, the friendly banjo atheist gives an update. He says, Breaking news, on November 9th, 2017, Ravi settled his lawsuit with Lorianne. We don't know what he paid her, but very likely he paid a large sum of money for her silence. Was it money that had been donated to his ministry by sincere and hardworking Christians? He says, ask Ravi, and then gives the emails. Look, I'm not here to cast stones and say that I've never sinned myself, but it seems to me that Dr. Zacharias owes his supporters, and he owes Christians generally, a response to this. And hopefully he's not going to just try to sweep it under the rug by paying a large sum of money for this lady's silence and then trusting the evangelical press to embargo the story. Christianity Today magazine, where are you on this? You publish other things about Dr. Zacharias? Hopefully you're investigating this story. We shouldn't need, quote, friendly atheists on the internet to take care of real ethical problems with Christian leaders. The evangelical community needs to publicly take some responsibility for this and deal with it openly, and I think so does Dr. Zacharias. This week's thinking music has been the track Break by Little Glass Men. I'm switching from PayPal to Patreon for those of you who are good enough to support the Trinity's podcast. Of course, you guys are its only support. But before I talk about Patreon, I would like to thank the people who have been giving monthly donations through PayPal. Thank you to Aaron in Florida to Gary in Florida, to John in Europe, to Timothy in Oklahoma, and especially to Danny in Pennsylvania. Thanks also to the many of you who have given one-time donations through PayPal. I'm not going to turn that off, but I am going to try to switch to Patreon. I think it's a system that people are comfortable with and it seems to work pretty well, and it allows me to give something back to the people who are supporting the podcast. Also, it lets you support by show. So you could donate a dollar per episode, for instance, that would be $4 a month. If you give $2 per episode or more, I'll invite you to be part of a monthly video chat where I'll update and tell you what's going on. I'm actually going through some big changes in my life, and I'll be talking about that in the first chat that we have, probably about at the end of this month, the end of November. Some of these changes could impact the podcast, as I'll explain at length. Obviously, it's a labor of love. I don't make money off of this. It takes about the equivalent of two workdays a week to do it. And the money that's donated really just goes to pay for the web hosting costs and for some books books I read from the people I interview, and other minor equipment costs and things like that. 
I'm not set up as a nonprofit organization, so unfortunately they're not tax deductible. Maybe someday I will take that step, but I haven't done that yet. So if you've given through PayPal, I'll be sending you a personal thank you and inviting you to check out the new Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com, spelled just like it sounds, slash trinities. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>